0: Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE.
1: You love them, you hate them, and you can't stop talking about them. Announcers,
0: analysts, pundits, they're all fair game. It's sports media payhem with Alex Reamer. Time to let it rip. right, and welcome in, everybody, to another edition of the Sports Media Mayhem Podcast. My name is Alex Reamer. It's a pleasure to be with you here today, this Wednesday, August the 3rd, as it is each and every week. I had a wonderful long weekend in San Francisco. Thank you for asking. It was my first time to SF, as the locals call it, since I was about 14 years old when I went with my parents. Suffice to say, I had a bit of a different experience this time, and I will just leave it at that. Uh, Yes, we're back here. Sports Media Mayhem Podcast. Uh have a good show lined up for you all this week coming up in a few moments. I will welcome on an old friend of mine, Ben Volen, Patriots writer, National NFL writer for the Boston Globe. Ben was way out in front of this incredible Tom Brady and Dolphins tampering story. So I want to talk to Ben about how the reporting process works on a story like this. He published a big feature story in the Globe about Brady and the Dolphins in April. It had, I think, an incredible headline a secret plan, a bombshell lawsuit, and a soccer match inside Tom Brady's unretirement. Dun, dun, dun. I can sense the drama from that, can't you? So I ask Ben, how long did it take between you getting a whiff of the story and it actually winding up in the pages of the Boston Globe? We talk about some other aspects of the Brady Dolphin story as well, and also get into the Deshaun Watson suspension and what this means for the NFL as a whole. And I'm always interested to talk about this from a media perspective. And I'm going to do it right now. I like it so much before we welcome Ben on. Um, So I'm sure you know this week, Judge Sue Robinson uh, was determining Deshaun Watson's punishment. The NFL recommended a full season suspension. She ruled on Monday that Watson will only be suspended six games for violating the league's personal conduct policy. Her reasoning was kind of confusing. She said that Watson's behavior was predatory and egregious, but she rejected the league's request for the full season suspension because she also said that his behavior was nonviolent, which seems very contradictory to me. I'm not quite sure how you can have predatory and egregious behavior and also have that be nonviolent. That seems very odd. Uh, But Judge Robinson has ruled six games, and now the proverbial football is back on the NFL side of the field Now the league will decide whether to accept or reject Robinson's suspension. I'll have more on that in a moment. But as we've talked about before on the show, I think most specifically when we went over the Washington Post's feature story on Adam Schefter and the high-profile screw-ups he's had over the last year from misreporting on a domestic violence case involving Vikings running back Dalvin Cook to the uh, really uh, insensitive way he reported Dwayne Haskins' death. Uh, bringing up his unsuccessful career as an NFL quarterback, Uh, a number of high-profile blunders for Schefter over the last year or so that makes you wonder or makes you say, "Mm, maybe a guy like Schefter, who's always on and is always tweeting breaking news, always getting out of press releases, maybe he should just stick to the X's and O's and leave these serious off-field issues where serious violent crimes are being committed or there's death involved, like in Dwayne Haskins' case, uh, maybe it's better for Schefter to take a step back and leave these stories to those with a bit more of a wide angled perspective and those who can take the time to have a bit more of a wide angled perspective. I would say the same thing applies to any sports writer who writes about these issues purely in a sports context. And uh, that's what we had this week with a columnist by the name of Marla Rittenauer of the Akron Beacon Journal. Uh, she wrote, I think. It's a column that almost reads as a parody. If you want an example of somebody just putting on the sports blinders and ignoring all other serious real world issues, uh, this column in the Akron Beacon Journal by Marla Ridenauer certainly uh, fits that criteria. Here's the headline, and it frankly tells you all you need to know. With Deshaun Watson's six-game suspension, Cleveland Browns record first victory of 2022. Mm, That's right. Deshaun Watson getting suspended six games after being accused by 24 different women of sexual misconduct. 24 poor women who are just trying to give him massages. In the heart of COVID, by the way, when their businesses are probably closed down, doing everything they can to try to survive, Make make an extra buck during those horrible, scary, dangerous times. And... (laughs) and and Mara Rittenhauer looks at it and says, forget all of them. Deshaun Watson's only out for six games, only a third of the season. That is a win. That is a win for the Cleveland Browns. What a way to kick off 2022. And this is her lead. It's almost as good as the headline. Personal feelings and long buried trauma aside, the Browns quest for a championship remains alive. So forget your feelings." Forget the trauma that you may have if you're a Browns fan who's been a survivor of domestic violence or sexual violence. Forget that. The Browns' quest for a title remains alive. This pathetic franchise may finally make a Super Bowl run on the shoulders of a quarterback who's been accused of being a serial sexual assaulter uh, of women massage therapists who come in just trying to make an extra buck. Oh, great. I feel so good about that. Don't you? And Hour continues. uh, These these sentences are just so great. Uh, Whether Robinson's ruling was too lenient after two Texas grand juries failed to indict Watson on criminal charges is a separate debate. And when you're writing, every single word is subjective. So when you're writing this sentence, whether Robinson's ruling was too lenient after two Texas grand juries failed to indict Watson on criminal charges is a separate debate. You're not just saying that's a separate debate. You're saying, uh, yeah, no criminal charges here. In my mind, debate settled. Never mind that standards for a criminal indictment, much different than the standards the NFL is using to justify its suspension of Watson and its disciplinary policy. Never mind all that. Cleared by two grand juries, up, nothing to see here. Because as we know, uh, everybody who's ever committed sexual assault. Has been indicted on criminal charges, right? They never miss it. If you're not indicted, it means you're innocent. We all know that. Please. I guess all these 24 women just lying. They must have loved they must have wanted the publicity. Uh, And then she runs into the schedule. And it's important that, by the way, this is a woman, Marla Rittenauer. So it shows that these kinds of views are not just exclusive to men. Uh, Women can have really bad opinions about sexual misconduct and these issues as well. Uh, She runs through the Brown schedule. She says that Watson will play against the Ravens and Bengals and Bills and Steelers. Oh my. Uh, And she just, and and he'll basically be on the field for every big game they have, except the one against the Chargers in early October. So Mara Redenauer says it's a big win for Cleveland. I understand wanting to be a little different. And frankly, if you were to write a column in the Akron Beacon journal or any publication about how Watson's six game suspension is not nearly enough, Uh, You know, you're going to be far from the only voice saying that. So in one way, I do credit this columnist for trying to think a little outside the box and trying to give a bit of a different perspective on it, because let's be real, hammering Roger Goodell and hammering the NFL for whitewashing sexual violence uh, is not really the most brave or original take at this point. It's an important take to have, but if you want to make an impact as a columnist, you want to try to find the angle that people are not talking as much about. Uh, well, Mara Rittenauer certainly did that here, talking about how this is a the a win, the first win for the Browns in their Super Bowl quest in 2022. Uh, it just mm, not the angle I would have chosen. And Mara Rittenauer seems to have the, a weird fetish for cleaning up Deshaun Watson's image because. This is another column she wrote over the last couple weeks. Cloud over Browns' Deshaun Watson not visible as quarterback makes memories for young fans. Of course, when Watson showed up to Browns' training camp, he was given an ovation by the Browns fans in attendance, and the young kids apparently had a good time as well. I mean, again, Deshaun Watson gets a standing O from Browns fans at training camp, and you as a columnist you're writing about How the clouds over him. Yeah, just clouds. Yeah, these 24 women accusing Watson of forcing them to touch him inappropriately. Yeah, they're just clouds. And they're not even visible because we're at training camp. And Deshaun Watson is making all these memories for the young fans come true. So I don't mean to rip on Mara hour of the Akron Beacon Journal. She's a local columnist. I'm sure she's working hard, trying to make an impact. But if you want to teach a course on the way for sports writers to not write about these kinds of issues, I would just point out these two Deshaun Sean Watson comes and rest my case. Um, so the other part of this Watson equation is the question I raised at the top of the show. What kind of impact, if any, will this have on the NFL? And we've seen this happen time and time again. There's severe underpunishment when it comes to sexual misconduct. There's all this fleeting outrage, tweets, columns, you know, now videos, takes, what have you. Everyone rips on the NFL for not caring about women, not caring about promoting the image of the league, And then it moves, and then everyone moves on. And when Deshaun Watson returns in week seven, he'll get a pop from the home crowd, and that will be it. It will seldom be mentioned again. If the Browns do wind up in the playoffs, then maybe you'll have a passing mention of these so called clouds that were hovering over Watson. And I'm sure you'll have some buffoon car analyst try to frame it as a redemption story, and they'll get crushed. But other than that, It won't really be brought up, and history shows us it won't have any impact on NFL ticket sales, on NFL interest, on NFL TV ratings. All you need to know about that is at the height of the whole Ray Rice saga in 2014, female viewership increased for the NFL. So that tells you all you need to know right there about the mentality we have and really the separation that we're able to do in our minds between player commits violent act off the field. We cheer for player because he's good on the field. We watch player because he's good and entertaining on the field. And Deshaun Watson certainly is. He's, it's a, there's a reason why he got over 200 million guaranteed. And there's a reason why the Browns uh, felt comfortable doing that because Jimmy Haslam, who's a horrible owner, and has been the steward of this horrible franchise, firing head coaches, moving on from quarterbacks. It's complete embarrassment. He looked at it and said, yeah, I'm going to get the cold shoulder from my fellow owners at these owners meetings, and I'm going to get slammed in the press, and Watson will miss some time. But when he comes back, it will all be in the past. We can put it behind us, and we'll make our Super Bowl run, not just for one year, but for many years, potentially. And the revenue we'll generate from that and the cachet our franchise will receive from that will be worth the temporary hit we are taking now. That's seemingly Haslam's logic. It's cynical logic, but I think it's unfortunately the correct logic to have here. The question is, does the NFL also view it that way? I think they may be a little more nuanced. Roger Goodell has shown he does care deeply about the public perception All you need to do is go back to the kneeling controversy a few years ago with Trump and how the NFL bent over backwards to try to acquiesce both parties, the White House and the players who wanted to protest during the national anthem. And, you know, that old adage, those who try to please all winds up pleasing no one at all. And that's true. But the NFL tried to do it years ago with the kneeling because they do care about public perception. And with that in mind, uh, Roger Goodell already went through the Rice catastrophe. Uh, Greg Hardy. There have been, unfortunately, a few others. He does not want to go down as the commissioner who whitewashed sexual violence and sexual misconduct. So I would expect the NFL to reject Robinson's ruling and go for a heavier ruling on Watson. Maybe it won't be a full season, but I think it will be at least double-digit games, and then we can have a bit of a different conversation. Another point I wanted to get to here this week is Heim uh, Bloom is, of course, the chief baseball officer of the Boston Red Sox. And I would say that Heim right now is the most reviled executive in Boston and maybe the most reviled sports executive in Boston we've had in quite a while. Uh, the Red Sox had an interesting deadline. They trade away their starting catcher, Kristen Vasquez, but they also acquire veteran first baseman Eric Hosmer. Yes, the Padres are paying basically all of Hosmer's deal, but the Red Sox said they were buyers and sellers, and they kind of were both buyers and sellers. But the vitriol directed at Heim Bloom is pretty serious. And, you know, you wonder why. I wrote about this a couple weeks ago, and it's worth exploring here right after the trade deadline. We've had Ivy League GMs before. I mean, Theo Epstein is really the prototype of this more new age, young, I mean, he was the youngest GM ever, Ivy League guy to run a front office. But Theo was beloved. Uh, He was a local kid. He did build the first World Series winner in 86 years. Or I should say complete the build of the first World Series winner in 86 years. I still give my man Dan Duquette a lot of credit for that nucleus. But, of course, Theo built the 07 championship team, and the Red Sox were at their apex with him in charge as we know. So Theo Epstein was a very popular figure here. Uh, Heim Bloom, despite being seemingly a personable guy, friendly enough guy, uh, definitely not uh, beloved here in any way. And I think it's because of two main reasons. Number one, due to the disappearing act of John Henry Tom Warner and others high up in this Red Sox ownership, Bloom is really the face of the organization. And, I mean, Sam Kennedy, to his credit, does do a lot of interviews, too. But when it comes to the baseball side of things, Bloom is really the face of this organization. And the truth is, a lot of people are not satisfied with how, the, with how the Red Sox have handled the baseball side of things for the last few years. You go back to Mookie Betts, trading him to the Dodgers, now possibly letting Xander Bogarts, Bogarts walk, walk. Easy for me to say, right? Wow. Uh, Xander Bogarts walk. Uh, that could happen this offseason when he opts out. Rafael Devers not re-signing him and reportedly offering him an insulting $160 million extension when he's worth upwards of $300 million, though he's not a free agent until after 2020, after 2023. Uh, those kind of things, as we learned with Lester, certainly can linger. So a lot of people upset with the way the Red Sox have been handling the baseball decisions. We know that Bloom doesn't have total autonomy there, especially when it comes to salaries and paying guys. but like for example, I think training Mookie Betts was a John Henry decision and then it was up to High and Bloom to determine where to trade him and what to get in return for him. So he's the face of an unpopular ownership group right now when it comes to their baseball decision making and it's also what he represents. Yes, Theo Epstein is the was the prototype of this Ivy League analytical type GM, but baseball in 04, 05, when Theo was first breaking in, was still baseball. Starting pitchers through complete games. They were allowed to throw no hitters. It wasn't all, you know, we had OBP and OPS. We didn't have VORP. We didn't have defensive runs saved. We didn't have all these advanced calculus type metrics out there. And Theo got the stars. He traded for Kurt Schilling. He signed Keith Falk. Uh, to build that 4 World Series team, traded for Josh Beckett and Mike Lowell, go on down the line. The Red Sox traded Nomar under Theo's watch, a really bold trade. They traded Manny, acquired Jason Bay under Theo's watch. Uh, They acquired Adrian Gonzalez, so that failed miserably, still a big star. They signed John Lackey, they signed Carl Crawford. Again, that failed miserably, but still a big star. Point is, the Red Sox, in addition to being a player developmental machine, Signed and acquired big-name All-Stars. Theo Epstein spent a lot of money. Hein does it does not represent that. He comes from the Rays, and he really represents the analytical takeover of baseball, talking about outfielders reading cue cards to tell them where to shift, Uh, starting pitchers only going three innings once through the order in the playoffs or a game of importance all this stuff about baseball, the plotting place of play, all the stuff that we have come to loathe about the modern game, Heim Bloom really represents. And because he comes from the Rays organization, he really does serve as the perfect prototype for this kind of major league baseball. So, you know, the front the disconnect between the front office and general managers. Alex Cora this week, frankly, looked like Art Howe and Moneyball. In Houston, when Christian Vasquez goes out on Monday to take batting practice, even though he's traded just a few minutes later, that right there shows a the disconnect between Bloom and Cora. I should say the apparent disconnect between Bloom and Cora and this front office and what's happening on the field. And again, I think Bloom catches so much heat, largely because he really represents and embodies this analytical era of baseball that none of us really like. And on that note... We're gonna to get to Ben Bolin, NFL writer for the Globe. He was all over this Tom Brady story, which I'm amazed that even still, with what came out on Tuesday, the NFL uncovering in its investigation that Brady, uh, that the Dolphins were tampering with Brady as far back as August of 2019. So this was going on while Brady was in his final year at the Patriots. Even though we know that as of Tuesday. I still think the story is somehow being a little underplayed. I mean, we have Tom Brady, the biggest star ever in football, the best player in football history, tampering with a divisional rival of the six-time Super Bowl champion Patriots before his final season with the Patriots even started. That sounds like a bombshell to me. I don't know. I I don't know what I'm expecting, but I would be expecting more. So... We're going to dive into this story and all the interesting side stories that go along with it with Ben Volen of the Globe. He is coming up on the other side of sports media mayhem. Thank you, as always, for listening. And welcome back to the show as I was saying in the opening it's been a while since I've spoken and actually seen Ben Volen but uh happy to see him now Ben how are you sir Alex
1: always a always a treat man I'm doing well I uh, hope you're having a great summer and uh, thanks for having me on
0: today I am I look pretty tan I think so it is a good summer right you can tell by told by the glow you look rested as well um I think you got a haircut since last time I've seen you it's been that long I did
1: I I, I was kind of cliche. I grew the pandemic hair. I, I, I grew the Jufro out and uh, I finally got like my first razor cut, um, like, uh, three weeks ago, maybe not too tight. You know, I sold number yeah. four razor, yeah. uh, still trying to grow the curls on top a little bit, but the, the big curly mop is now gone.
0: I like it. So that's good. Get, get a good men's regular just in time for training camp. Belichick would like that as a military guy. Exactly. Uh, um, so hey, you were out in front of this huge Brady's Dol- Brady Dolphin story. You published in April the feature in the Globe: a secret plan, a bombshell lawsuit, and a soccer match inside Tom Brady's in retirement. Love the headline. Uh, but I'm curious: when you come across a story like this, what is the reporting process like? Like, how long was it between you catching a whiff of this and putting together the extensive feature story that you did this spring? Uh, about two months,
1: to be honest. Yeah. And, and it's not like I was, you know, really like gathering string the whole time. But frankly, what it was is when he retired, I heard some good juice that Brady had something cooking, that Brady was going to be he, he wasn't going to be sitting around for long, that this wasn't really a retirement. Um, however, and, and I it it was good info and it, <laughs> and it ended up being like every word was proven true yesterday by the NFL. Yeah. Um, but I didn't have two sources on it. And we do have pretty high standard. I didn't feel comfortable. Like really going with it early, without more corroboration, and and that's kind of a story that that's tough to corroborate. Like, hey Tom, you going to the Dolphins? Like, you know what do you? Hey Don Yee, can you t- can you confirm this for me? Yeah. Um, so I I sat on it for a while, and Mike Florio, to his credit, he he beat me to the punch. He he got it out first. Right. He had, um he he kind of introduced the Sean Payton angle, which. Uh, I was I was only kind of aware of what was going on with Brady. I didn't realize that there was a tie-in with Peyton. And then once the, kind of that initial trickle came out, I was able to double back with a couple of sources and um, get some really good insight into everything. And then some of it is just kind of following along and, and knowing how to piece the narrative together. I mean, you didn't need sources to know that Brady was going to the Manchester United football match and that they're owned by the Glazers. And that, um, you know, thankfully, like Rich Ornberger, a former Patriots lineman he had some good insight that uh, about why the brady bruce arian's uh relationship wasn't uh, uh going so smoothly the, you know this past year so it was, it's a combination of like you know working sources and kind of building information but also just gathering string and and just kind of observing everything that went on and what's funny is i, I first spoke about everything in like mid-march uh on weei and i was on the merlonian fourier program right it all out, and they thought I was a crazy conspiracy theorist. But I was like, no, I'm telling you guys, this is what's going on. And it got to be, like, early April. I was talking to my editor. I was like, you know, I've never, like, really written this for the Globe. Like, it kind of souped enough. Because it it was right after Arians got fired. And it's like, how did Brady go from – how did we go from Brady retiring and Arians looking for a new quarterback to, like, a month and a half later, Brady's now back and Arians fired. So I just thought it was important to just kind of put together a whole – soup to nuts kind of piece and um, it worked out well. And and going back reading it, you know, it's everything that the NFL said yesterday. So um, it it was, uh, it was, it's been a fun story. One of those weird ones, like it's truth is stranger than fiction. It's, it's a story. And uh, frankly, it took an even stranger turn yesterday. When we learned that um, Brady and the dolphins were talking to each other all of 2019 from as soon as um, training camp that year, August. So that, that to me added a whole new layer to the
0: story. Yeah, I mean, it's been like a three-year courtship. It shows that secrets can still be kept. Maybe not forever, but we had no idea it went back that long. And even if you have just, not even a cynical mind, but just a mind that follows the dots, Brady's retirement and how haphazard it was, and then coming back, such a strange story. There's no way anybody with a with a sentient mind, as I like to say, could have taken that at face value. I mean, so strange. <sighs>
1: Uh, definitely. Yeah. The way that it leaked out on a Saturday without Brady's control and they tried to put the toothpaste back in the tube and then he came back on a Tuesday and look, this thing, it was all going to happen. He was going to go to Miami. He was going to be, you know, team president, uh, probably own 3% of the team. And then the Brian Flores lawsuit just messed up everything. It was filed the same day that Brady retired. The two events had nothing to do with each other. Brady, I don't think had any idea this lawsuit was coming down the pike. And it just made the situation toxic and and spoiled all their best laid plans. Um, and, and you wonder about the Sean Payton piece, too. Uh, the Dolphins got slapped yesterday for um, uh, contacting Payton before he had officially stepped down from the Saints. You wonder if he would have stepped down had he known that the Dolphins thing would have blown up. Uh, you know, nice. when he's coaching the, the, the Saints right now. Um, if he had known that he would be out of football this year. So that that to me is another interesting tentacle to this.
0: My question too is how did the NFL uncover the 2019 tanker tampering when they were initially investigating the Flores tanking charges and what happened this off season? What's your theory there? Well, so Flores
1: also put tampering in there and they tried to get him. So we knew that the, the dolphins had tried to woo Brady in like February of 2020, which was after the season, which is like it's a month before free agency. That kind of tampering happens all all the time in the NFL. I, I didn't think too much of it, but to learn that it, it happened as early as August that year is is certainly fascinating. And to me, yeah, the fact that they were able to conclusively prove this and say there were numerous and detailed conversations between Brady and Bruce Beal means they got someone's cell phone, and I'm 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 guessing it was. Uh, Bruce Beal's cell phone. He's a, a limited partner of the Dolphins. Um, he's a real estate guy. He's a I think has strong Boston ties. Yeah, friend of Brady has been on the bros trip to the Kentucky Derby. Um, so you know I'm sure maybe they were just talking a lot, but uh, about you know what have you? Not necessarily the Dolphins, but they either got someone's cell phone or Stephen Ross spilled everything because supposedly. Brady and Bruce Beal were talking throughout the season, and then Beal would relay the contents back to Ross, and maybe Ross decide. Maybe you know, I tend to think Ross and the Dolphins got off easy; that the NFL let them slide on all this tanking stuff. So maybe part of it was, no, you got to come clean; you got to tell us all this stuff about the tampering. And so I'm sure there was plenty of tit for tat going on there. But um, back to what I just said, it it is kind of shocking that they—not shocking. I mean the, the the Uh, tanking allegations would have opened up a whole can of worms that I don't think the NFL wanted to deal with Uh, certainly legal liability wise and and lawsuits but so you know Ross and the Dolphins are lucky that they got off scot-free and maybe not lucky you know Goodell I think is protecting them because they don't want to go down that, that, um, that wormhole and instead they kind of are making it seem like they hammered Uh, Stephen Ross for the the tampering allegations and really I think the tanking was much more serious. No, I
0: agree. And I I, like you said, whenever the NFL comes down on an owner and there's discipline with ownership, you have to wonder what kind of quid pro quo was here That, that that is a good point. Switching gears here, you also wrote about the Deshaun Watson six-game suspension this week. I'm curious from a media perspective always, obviously when this gets announced, six-game suspension, there's all sorts of outrage, criticism, columns, tweets, et cetera. But I'm curious at this point in 2022, Ray Rice was almost 10 years ago. Does this kind of stuff have any impact on the NFL besides fleeting outrage? Uh, if they if they really botched this, then
1: I, I do think, that it has an impact on the NFL. I mean, Roger Goodell, I I think was close to losing his job in the wake of the Ray Rice situation. And that's why they came up with the personal conduct policy and they tried to standardize um, their punishments here with this and their processes. Um, So look, I I, look, I think if they, if they leave this alone, because so Roger Goodell and the NFL, they have three days since Monday. So coming up tomorrow, Thursday, they have three days to appeal the decision. And then Roger Goodell, Here's the appeal, and they're allowed to increase the punishment. So even though Judge Robinson comes down with six games, it's still the ball is very much in the NFL's court, and they can do whatever they want. So to me, this is an easy layup for Goodell and and the NFL as far as PR doing the right thing just appeal it, increase the punishment. I don't know if it's going to be a year, maybe 10 or 12 games, but I don't see many people being very satisfied with the six-game suspension that Watson got, and it seemed kind of a random way that that Robinson even landed on that number. So to me, it's an easy PR win for them to increase the punishment, and it's they'd, they'd get crushed, I think, if they just leave it alone because I, I think already you're seeing – national women's groups and and things of that nature already speaking out and saying the NFL's punishment is toothless. And the NFL can say, well, it's a independent arbitrator. This wasn't our decision, but if they let it lie and if they let it be, then it is their decision. So to me, they will get crushed. They will have, I think, very bad publicity. Will it affect ticket sales or TV contracts? I'm not sure, but public opinion does matter to them. Roger Goodell, his legacy does matter to him. He doesn't want to be known as the guy, you know, sweeping domestic violence and sexual assault under the rug. So there there will be a lot of outrage, I think, if they don't increase this punishment. And so it, to me, that's an easy layup for Goodell. Appeal it, double it, you know, make it a 12-game suspension, and I think that'll
0: get a lot of people off his case. Yeah, I think we saw from the whole kneeling stuff a few years ago, the NFL does value a public perception, does value that intangible aspect, certainly. My last one for you, Ben, going back to the Patriots real quick. Some guys who have actually played professional football, Robert Griffin III, I saw Dominique Foxworth said it this week as well, are claiming that the Patriots not having an official OC is actually an advantage to them. I've only played flag football in my life, so maybe I'm not privy to this, but where are those guys getting this stuff? Out of their ass or out of Foxborough? What do you think? Which <laughs> one of the two? You'll have to ask them where
1: exactly it's coming from. Um, I- It matters internally that the Patriots, the players, the coaches, that everyone knows the chain of command. So it doesn't necessarily matter that we don't know who the offensive coordinator is, but it matters internally. You want to have uh, accountability and know where things are coming from. So it looks like it's going to be Matt Patricia. Honestly, Bill Belichick is very much in charge. Uh, I've heard a lot of stories the last couple weeks about even, even like during the Charlie Weiss days, Belichick would be like, like during the games, Hey Charlie, they're doing X Y Z on defense, so you need to call A B C. Like he's basically all, always been telling the offensive coordinators generally um, what to run. I, I'm coming around on the idea of having so with Patricia and Belichick, two kind of defensive coaches. I like that in Mac Jones's ear. You know that that you have a defensive coach in Mac Jones's headset telling him, "Hey, watch out for the safety doing this." So I, I am coming around on it, but. Uh, no 31 other teams named their offensive coordinator it doesn't seem to be a competitive disadvantage so i wouldn't say it's an advantage that the patriots are not doing it but it doesn't necessarily have to hurt them either
0: ben great to see you man thanks for coming on all right alex always a pleasure man. thank you